I wanted to keep our sermon light today, so we're going to delve into suffering. <laughs> deep, deep human pain and suffering. Sound good? We just heard an excerpt from a letter in Peter talking about suffering as Christians. At the time of its writing, around 64 AD or so, Christians were being heavily persecuted by the Roman Emperor Nero. I don't think I'm too out of line when I say Nero wasn't a super nice guy. Nero's persecution devastated the Christian community in Rome to include the eventual martyrdom of Peter. You see, Romans at the time viewed Christians like Jews as hostile to the rest of society. Certain stereotypes were commonplace. Christians were considered atheists for not believing in the gods. Christians were considered cannibals for eating of Jesus' body and drinking of his blood. And Christians were considered incestuous for statements like, I love you, brother, and I love you, sister. Traditional Jewish faith was a poor target for overt and outright persecution, as there were many in Rome who practiced it. Further, one of Nero's mistresses just so happened to be a patron of Jewish causes. By contrast, Jesus' movement had tenuous support as, at best, even in Jewish circles. Therefore, it was a pretty ideal political scapegoat. Nero burned Christians alive as torches to light up his garden at night. The fire ordeal that was mentioned in the letter was likely in reference to that particularly unfortunate way to die. Nero killed Christians in other equally severe ways, such as feeding them to wild animals for public entertainment. All told, Nero likely killed thousands of Rome's Christians. Now, I, I personally have been called a Marxist and a communist and a heretic. Maybe you have been, too. Perhaps someone has mischaracterized you as uncaring or bigoted based on Christian views that they've seen on the news. Perhaps you have been thought as less than intellectual for your faith. But all things considered, not so shabby compared to being burned alive or eaten by a lion. Now, I dodged a goose out there in the parking lot this morning. <laughs> but that beats a lion. So what can we take from this letter in Peter? What can we take as Christians that mostly find ourselves in circumstances where we have the freedom to practice our religion without fear of persecution? Some create persecution. They see the world as an evil place that is naturally against the righteous Christian. They take God completely outside of the world and everything in the world that is not from a very narrow viewpoint is an evil to be combated. This fits the persecution quota to be blessed and gives the spirit of glory that was mentioned in that letter. However, this denies the presence of God here in our world. It creates a narrative where God is our warrior and will strike down our enemies, and those enemies include anyone that isn't exactly like us. We begin to secretly wish for the day of judgment where we, the chosen ones, are rewarded and the other ones, the bad ones, are thankfully left out of salvation and suffer just as they deserve. This, however, does not line up with the teachings of Jesus to me, a Jesus who spent his time with the outcast, those from other religions, those that were unclean, the orphan, the widow, the prisoner, the poor, and the hungry. He had a particular heart for the other and those that had been thrown out of supposedly righteous society. I grew up in essentially two different households as my parents divorced when I was very young. 
One house centered around religion. My stepfather was an on and off again, part-time, small, rural church pastor. I don't want to brag, but I was the local church camp camper of the year runner-up two years in a row <laughs> in junior high. And really, it's nothing to brag about. This was no Camp Akita. There was maybe 40 kids there, tops. So looking back at it as an adult, A, it's weird they had a camper of the year, and B, it's pretty bad that I got runner-up both years. <laughs> we were at church consistently and constantly and always in our Sunday best. Now, the other house, that was my father. He's no longer with us, but church wasn't a part of my life there. I'm pretty sure we only went my, when my grandfather was visiting. You were much more likely to find my father at the bar, yucking it up with anyone in his vicinity. He was one of the most intelligent people I've ever known, but he was also a messy guy, both literally and figuratively. You always knew, even into his 60, 60s, exactly where he was in the house because you could follow the trail of M&Ms. <laughs> he had a big bushy mustache, he smoked Marlboro Reds and drank Budweiser Heavies. I don't think I ever saw him drink a glass of water. You could make a case that he was a functioning alcoholic. He had a deep, gravelly voice. He could curse like a sailor, and he was married three times. Back at my church-going family's house, I was singing Yes, Jesus Loves Me. At my father's house, I was singing Leonard Skinner and Billy Joel. <laughs> but then an interesting thing started to happen as I got a bit older. I started to notice that things didn't really line up. At church in my one home, we continually spoke about how God is true love, yet there was an undercurrent of exceptionalism and exclusivity that came with that love. See, God loved us, surely, but the others, not really. Those in the LGBTQ community were not treated as our siblings. They were getting what they deserved with the AIDS epidemic. Keep in mind, I grew up in the 90s. Other religions were preaching evil and would certainly meet their fate in hell. It was important not to mix the races. I was told to never date someone outside of my ethnicity. There was very clearly in us, God's chosen people, and very clearly in them, those that God was always angry with and any suffering that occurred over there, well, that was, that was simply God's plan. Then in my father's home, my messy, unkempt, beer-guzzling, chain-smoking heathen of a father, well, he taught me empathy. I was chastised for speaking down about someone else. He creatively taught a stubborn teenager how to put himself in someone else's shoes. He had friends of many different creeds and backgrounds. He would consistently help those around him even when there was nothing in it for him. I recall one time he loaned a friend some money, and he'd loaned this friend money before, and he never paid him back. And I said, why are you loaning this guy money again? And he told me, you help someone out because they need it, not because you expect a certain outcome. In one home, which placed religion at the center, the goal was to go to heaven as God's chosen. There was a sometimes gleeful reaction of the suffering of others. There was a picture of a God that picked sides and was ready to strike down those that didn't believe like us or share the same background. Conversing with the other, let alone helping them, was wrong and perhaps blasphemy. In my father's home, I was taught compassion for others, to help others, even when it wasn't pretty, even when it didn't benefit me, even when it may have actively hurt me, the focus was on relationship. So maybe, maybe that's the secret. Maybe that's the message we can take away from that letter in Peter. The focus is on shared relationship versus the focus on glory. Whether you believe it literally or figuratively, 
followers of Jesus are challenged to look at a God who entered the human condition and suffers for it and with it. God is not remote, detached, or above the particulars of human suffering, but intimately aware of our suffering because God has entered it and struggles alongside of us. That may be our inspiration. The letter in Peter states, But rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so you may be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. We share in Christ's suffering. We share in the type of suffering Jesus suffered, not for our own personal elevation or to earn our spot as God's chosen. We suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the elevation of justice, for love's sake, the kind of compassionate love that Jesus demonstrated and furthered in the world. When we try to preserve our lives, our status quo, our comfort levels, and our desire for individual happiness without consideration to others' needs or safety, we simply lose the message of Jesus' suffering. We do not undertake suffering in order to glorify suffering or to prove ourselves worthy. We are already worthy, and suffering to which Jesus points is hardly glorious. But we enter into suffering in the way of God, by furthering God's mercy in the midst of great pain, by furthering God's embrace. And this is something that simply can't be done from a distance. Suffering with our siblings requires relationship. It requires giving up something without the expectation of a return. Dick Gregory is an African-American activist and comedian. He once said, In the South, they don't mind how close I get so long as I don't get too big. In the North, they don't mind how big I get so long as I don't get too close. His point was to prove that racism is alive in one of the South as well as the North, and it just takes on different forms. It's easy to take on that North persona illustrated in this quote. I'm as guilty of it as anyone. We wish those suffering well. We hope all get the help that they need. We smile and say the right things. We offer thoughts, and then we offer prayers. We may even give a little bit of money to a few charities to make ourselves feel better. But just make sure it doesn't materially affect me in the process. We don't truly want to interact with the problems of those that suffer the most in our society. We may give a homeless person a dollar or two, but we don't want to actually speak to them to ask their name, to humanize that dirty person laying on the ground, to make them a part of our community. We want every child to have a home. We want every family to prosper. But we don't want affordable housing to enter our neighborhood and lower the value of our homes and bring an unknown element to our front door. We want, we want the plague of violence that is gripping our inner cities and poor neighborhoods to end, but we will not enter those dangerous neighborhoods or interact with those who live there to lend a helping hand. We surely want all to be paid livable wages and stay employed and to thrive, but not at the expense of year-over-year -year corporate profits that would affect our portfolios and 401ks. We lament the divisiveness and hatred we see on television. Watching the news becomes an exercise in torment. We turn the television off and instead of making a difference, remain in our protective bubbles. I tried to think of a quote or something inspirational that would drive this thought home here at First Community, all those in this room and all those watching online. 
something that would relate to everyone. So naturally, I dug through some hip-hop and rap lyrics. As an aside, my goal while Glenn is gone is to get the music department to have an all-hip-hop music Sunday. <laughs> Hasn't gotten a lot of traction as of yet. <laughs> anyway, the rap artist's grandson has a song where he poetically states, and don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to rap this. <laughs> Do you have enough love in your heart to go and get your hands dirty? Do you love your neighbor? Is it in your nature? Do you love a sunset? Aren't you fed up yet? Do you have enough love in your heart to go and get your hands dirty? I love being here with all of you on a Sunday morning. Everything is bright and shiny. You guys, you're, you're a handsome bunch. I go home from service on Sundays feeling refreshed and renewed. It truly is a sacred space. But we see the face of God most in the muck and in the mire. At 2 a.m. with a friend who is drunk and broken and hurting. With a group marching for peace until shots ring out and they come face to face with violence and they return in greater numbers the next time. When a community of little means rallies around its most vulnerable and searches for a better future for their children. When someone puts their reputation or financial situation on the line because it's the right thing to do. When we place our fellow siblings above ourselves in messy and perilous ways. Jesus was not afraid to get his hands dirty. He was out with the poor, women, children, prostitutes, tax collectors, those scorned by society, rather than hanging out with kings and the religious leaders of the day. He did not care how that looked, nor did he care for his own personal comfort. The spirit of glory that comes from suffering, as referred to in the letter in Peter, comes not from suffering itself. There is no glory in suffering for the sake of suffering or in deeming suffering part of God's plan. However, in that suffering, in that pain, is where we find God. It's where we find the essence of Jesus. When we are willing to get close, when we are willing to get our hands dirty to suffer with rather than distance ourselves from those that need it the most, that is when we draw ourselves closer to Jesus and our neighbor, and the Spirit of God rests within us. Amen.